0: This is Broadcast Mysteries, a podcast. A story about a case of the unexplained, the uncanny, and the unsolved. I'm Carolee Gerwing. Over the past five episodes, we have looked at the aspects involved in the case of the disappearance of Cole Atkins underneath a microscope. Every detail, no matter how minor, we went over. Tough to cover everything in six episodes, but the story being told, Cole's story, is there, and all will be clear soon. We've looked at the circumstances surrounding the case, the people involved, we've looked in depth at the evidence that the police collected, as little as that was, we've talked to people who worked with Cole at Revolver Industries, the place he worked at the time of his disappearance, we talked to one of the detectives who investigated the case, and we spent time with Cole's wife, Carrie Atkins, his best friend and cousin, Jamie Lloyd, and we've talked to Sylvester Woods, Cole's mysterious co-worker, who works side-by-side side with him at Revolver. We have the who, the where, and the what. We have the how, partially, but before this is all said and done, we're going to get a full view of what actually happened, and of course, the why. From what Sylvester has told us, the argument was regarding still getting rid of the tapes. He demanded to know why, but Cole refused to give him all the details, saying that this was his baby, the project that is, and that he was free to conduct experiments if he'd like. He didn't need Sylvester holding him back. Now Sylvester admits that these words hurt, but he knew that Cole didn't mean it. He knew that Cole kept him at a distance for a reason. A reason, he suspects, was that Sylvester had plausible deniability when it came to the result of whatever experiment Cole decided to do. So Sylvester did as asked, and the result, in his opinion, was Cole Atkins most likely trying to conduct an unsafe transfer using the teleportation devices, and there was a malfunction. To put it in more clear words, Cole tried something weird with the machines, and the results were… well, that he accidentally killed himself. That's one way to look at it. Another option is that when Cole got back into the lab, someone who worked for a revolver, or for the Truffauts specifically, was waiting for him. It is possible that Ronnie Truffaut had figured out what Cole and Sylvester had been working on. It's very much a possibility, and the murder of one scientist and the exile of another is also possible. But again, this brings it back to the idea that it would be incredibly difficult to get rid of Cole without any evidence being uncovered. There is the idea that Detective Claire Cusio, whose trust and allegiance has been questioned throughout this case, had tampered with the crime scene without the knowledge of fellow detective, his partner, Nick Lieb. All these things are possible, but highly improbable. It's the scenario that is most down-to-earth, while at the same time being a scenario that is highly dramatic, in a case where craziness runs amok. Let's not forget the possibility that what Sylvester is telling us is just a flood of misinformation, and that he's lying. This isn't something that I've entirely ruled out, but it's also not something I give much weight. And At the end of the day, we have to believe that someone here is telling the truth, and I choose to believe that Sylvester Woods is that someone. All these scenarios, while being possible, are also fascinating, but for once, I'm not interested in what's fascinating, I'm interested in the truth and what actually happened. I wanted answers. And that's what I'm going to get. Since the days after my interview with Sylvester Woods, I pored over all the evidence I'd collected previously. Myself, with the help of a few interns, went over every shred of evidence. Every interview transcript, every document I had about this case all to see if all the information we had collected could be seen in a new light. Some of it had, some of it points to exactly where we were headed this whole time, a destination that I frankly never saw coming. Last episode, we took a look at Cole's obsession with a book series called The Dark Tower, and how it related to the idea of other dimensions, other worlds, more specifically the idea of a possible afterlife. That's the idea I want to talk about today. Heaven and Hell, Life After Death, I want to look into certain ideas that Cole had about where we go after we die. We've talked a bit about the death of Cole Atkins' son, Robert Atkins, or Bobby as they called him, but we never fully explored what a profound effect his death had on Cole. How could we? From what people have said about him, Cole wasn't exactly an open book, especially when it came to discussing anything pertaining to Bobby. Even Cole's wife, Carrie, admits that it wasn't something that he liked to talk about. Despite all her pressures to do so, he never quite opened up to her. But it was clearly something he thought about often, maybe continuously, even if he never spoke about it. But isn't that how most obsessions go? Especially ones this personal? And yes, Cole Atkins was certainly obsessed. That much is clear. But about what exactly? There is one more person involved in this case, a person we have yet to talk to, who I've always thought would hold the key to this entire case, whether they knew that or not. That person is Roxanne Atkins, or as we have come to know her, Roxy, Cole Atkins' daughter. I first met with Roxy only a month ago. She was hesitant to be involved, mostly because she felt that she wouldn't be much help being so young, but also because this was an event in her life that she had spent 20 years trying to get over. I can't blame her for wanting to stay quiet. Since our first meeting, I've talked to Roxy on several occasions, and at first, she was tough to crack. She was closed off and unwilling to let me in, but slowly, the icy exterior she had built up over the years began to thaw, and as it melted away, I could see who Roxy Atkins really was. A kind, insightful person who had suffered from a tragic event, and was trying hard to let go. Like I said, I always felt that Roxy was important to this case, but how important? That is something I would have never expected. I'm going to play excerpts from a number of interviews that I conducted over the last month with Roxy Atkins. and My hope is at the end of this, you have a clear idea of what happened to Cole and what was on his mind on that hot August day all those years ago. Here's an excerpt from our first interview, which was conducted on July 31st hi roxy hi well i've really been looking forward to this as have my listeners okay (laughs) roxy is a very beautiful young girl in the prime of her life she's small and has a quietness about her she was shy and nervous i could tell but at the same time she was calm and controlled and a little self-deprecating but in a funny dry way like she was on edge but didn't want me to know I tried my best to make her comfortable. This is a little over an hour into our conversation. Well, why don't you tell me about what you remember about that time?
1: Oh, wow. Well, I was pretty young.
0: Alright, that's alright. Just whatever you remember.
1: I remember the insanity that followed. I remember being confused. At first. I didn't really get what was going on, and my mom, well... She had her own stuff to deal with. But she didn't really tell me all the details. Just kept saying stuff like, something happened to Daddy, and then eventually it became, people can't find Daddy, and then Daddy's gone. I understood more than they thought, I think. Actually, about a year before, I remember a young girl went missing, and I overheard some of the adults talking about it. I thought something similar happened to my dad. The way the adults talked when that little girl went missing was pretty much the same way they talked about my dad. Hushed, worried. You know, I don't ever think they found that little girl. Actually, me telling you this makes me sound like a Freddy Smart kid, which is not true. I was neither a bright nor attractive child. Oh, come on. I highly doubt that. No, I swear. It was really unfortunate. You know what else I remember? I remember the look on my mom's face when she told me my dad was gone and not coming back. I remember the sadness in her eyes, buried deep. But I could see it. Even though she was trying to be strong for me, I've... I've never seen her like that before. I've seen it plenty of times since, though. Yeah. My dad, wherever he went, he really did a number on her.
0: The next time I spoke with Roxy was a few days later on August 5th. This time, I asked her to try and remember anything specifically her father might have said to her. I gave her a copy of the police transcript to jog her memory. Here's what she had to say.
1: Uh, I remember these interviews. Oh yeah? Uh Uh-huh. Thought the police were nice, but getting this back, they were kind of dicks, weren't they? Yeah, they went at you hard. Well, what did they expect me to know? I was eight years old. My dad was missing or dead, and I remember a couple of the kids around the neighborhood would tease me. Saying that my dad had left or killed himself or been murdered. It was a really awful thing to say to a child. I hated them. Still do. Jeff Barnes, if you're listening to this, I hate you.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, So did you look over the portion I highlighted about what your dad said the night before?
1: I did. Do you remember saying that? Kind of. Those interviews, they all blend together in my brain for the most part. Do you remember if that's actually what your dad said? I do. I will never forget those words. Because that's the last
0: thing he said to you?
1: No, um, because it made me think he was coming back.
0: I didn't talk to Roxy again for about a week. It wasn't that she was upset, it's just that real life got in the way. This time I asked her to go through her dad's belongings, which I know from speaking to Carrie that they mostly had kept in a storage logger. Here's part of our conversation on August 13th.
1: You wouldn't believe the kind of crap he had in there. Books, records, magazines, and notebooks. A ton of notebooks. Why my mom kept all of this? Probably why she was never able to move on. You know, in all the years since my dad left, she never once had a boyfriend. Or at least, not one that I knew about. And honestly, I doubt she was sneaking around. I would have suspected something.
0: You know, you keep saying when your dad left. Have you ever noticed that?
1: Uh, I guess not.
0: Why do you think you use those words specifically?
1: I don't know. Maybe because it's easier than explaining to new people that my dad vanished into thin air, like some part of a magical act. Maybe because that's how it feels. Oh, um, I started reading those notebooks, by the way. None of them are dated, so it was kind of hard to keep track, but I found one that was written right around the time that Bobby died. Can I read it to you? Of course. Yeah, go ahead. I see him. Not just in my dreams, but when I'm awake. At least, I think I'm awake. The porting process feels like a dream state. The way time is bent and fractured. I can see him clearly, like he was before this all went to hell. He was healthy and happy, and each time I go to visit him, I'd hear him calling my name. Not Dad, like he normally did, but my actual name. Cole. Come here, Cole. Help me, Cole. Sylvester suspects that I'm hiding something from him. I need to push the experiments further. I need more time. I need to bring him back.
0: The next time I met with Roxy was August 19th. At the end of our last conversation, I had asked her to look in the storage room for something that I thought might help us. I asked her to look through her father's book collection for a specific book written by a specific famous horror novelist. I was both surprised and excited when she slid an early copy of The Gunslinger, The Dark Tower Part 1, onto my coffee table. At this point, I had told her about my conversation with Sylvester Woods we talked briefly about Revolver and her father's experiments, mostly over the phone. She seemed genuinely interested in a way I hadn't seen yet. Roxy felt that the mystery was solvable, and for the first time in a long time, I felt the exact same way. Here's our conversation. You found it. I did. Have you read it? Nope. Have you even opened it? I sure have. Roxy slid the book over to me. I didn't quite know what to do with it, but looked up and saw her eyes looking at me eagerly. She kept nodding, telling me to go ahead, until I finally opened it. And well, here's what I saw. I opened the pages, slowly. They smelled of old books, a smell I remember from my childhood spin in libraries. I turned to the dedication, and, well, it was scratched out in blue pen. There was something scrawled underneath. A replacement, if you will. What it said was, To Roxy, my daughter, this is what I leave you. What do you think it means?
1: I don't really know, but there's more. Keep looking.
0: I opened the book, and at first, I didn't see much. But then as I scrolled through the pages, there was something written into the margins of a few of them. Numbers. Mostly nonsense. Then Roxy pointed me to the back of the book, the portion that every book has that is just a couple of blank pages. Those two were covered with number sequences. We looked over the pages together.
1: Creepy, isn't it? It's a bit odd. I think it's some kind of puzzle. I think he was trying to tell me something.
0: I thought about that book all night after our conversation. Could it really be true? Was Cole trying to tell his daughter something? Did he know that his end may be near? What did those numbers mean? Were they just gibberish left by a man who was terribly depressed and had no outlet to express himself? Was Cole's mental state a lot more fragile than people realize? Even if a child version of Roxy Atkins can sense that her father wasn't right, maybe we were simply dealing with a man who cracked. And maybe his friends and his family simply were blind to it. After all, Carrie Atkins had also lost a son and was going through quite a bit herself. It would be understandable that she wouldn't see how Cole was feeling. All these ideas whirled around in my head late into the night. The case of Cole Atkins, all the answers I'd hoped for, felt so close. But at the same time, they were just out of reach. I could see them, but everything was blurry. I fell asleep sometime around 2 in the morning that night, and the phone call came not too long after that. I'd also like to point out that this phone call took place on the 19th anniversary of Cole's disappearance. An eerie coincidence, to say the least. Here's the final conversation I had with Roxy Atkins in the early morning of August 20th. Well, I'm in my kitchen with Roxy, who refused to tell me why she found it necessary to record at 4am. I'm still in my PJs. So,
1: Roxy, what's up? So, I've been reading over the book and running over the numbers and i figured it out. Go on. It's an Ottendorf cipher.
0: An Ottendorf cipher, also known as a book cipher, is a code system that uses a series of numbers which correspond with a specific text. Each number represents a page, a word, and then a letter inside that word, which in turn lets you uncover a word or phrase not typically in the text. The specific text in this scenario cole's copy of the gunslinger
1: how sure are you sure enough that i spent all night decoding it you did yeah i wanted to be sure that this was legit before i brought it to you let me see this how did you
0: figure this out
1: i'm good at puzzles i'm good at sequences finding patterns i imagine that's a trait that i've inherited from my dad i just figured that the numbers had to mean something the book had to mean something It was so important to my dad, so I put two and two together.
0: Well, what does it say? Have you figured it out yet?
1: I think so. And? Here. You can read it all yourself. I swear I didn't make any of this up. I think we got it.
0: Roxy pulled out a coiled notebook from her bag. She cautiously handed it over to me. I opened and read it. Then I read it again. I read it a total of four or five times at my kitchen table. Afterwards, I looked up at her, still skeptical of her findings, to find that she was crying. She was smiling, but tears fell down onto her cheeks freely. She had a slight shake to her. And in that moment, any skepticism I had inside me fled, and I too began to cry. Here's what the cipher message said I have found your brother. He is somewhere and I have to get him out. He is in the place where people go when they die. I have to keep trying. Once I do, we can be a family again. If you read this, I have tried and failed. But remember, I will always love you. Never forget the face of your father. The last numbers indicate two quotes. The first, go then, there are other worlds than these. One looked into heavily in the previous episode the other segment of code took us to the very opening lines of the book it said the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed i also found out that the phrase never forget the face of your father is a quote from the books itself as well in the books it's a phrase that both means that you should always remember where you came from and who you are it means that you should trust your gut And that's exactly what I did. Roxy and I talked for a while after that. We talked and discussed the facts and recent discoveries of the case. We both came to a conclusion that, while we weren't 100% certain on, we both felt was right. I relayed my theory to Sylvester, and he agrees that it's both possible, given how the teleportation technology worked, and probable, given Cole's state of mind, evident by the note and journal entries we discussed. Again. It was an answer that we were both satisfied with. So what happened to Cole Atkins? That's the question, isn't it? It's always been the question. Over the course of the last six episodes, I've tried my best to give you the who, the when, and the why, and the how. But really, the only question we've ever really needed answered is the what. What happened to Cole Atkins? No one can ever truly know. But here's what I think happened. On the morning of August 20th, 1997, Cole Atkins went to work, seemingly like it was any other day. Though we know now that it wasn't the case, and what we didn't know is that Cole Atkins knew, or at least knew that it was a possibility that this would be his last day working at Revolver. His last morning shower, the last time he would kiss his wife, and the last time he would see his daughter, Roxy. He got there at his usual time, and for the most part, he went about his day as he normally did, at least that's what was on the surface. Underneath his polite hellos and how are yous, was a man who had something else on his mind. A plan, if you will. That plan, well... We know that the experiments that Cole and Sylvester Woods worked on at Revolver pushed boundaries in regards to what we thought possible in science. They invented a way to transport matter from one place to another. Part of that experiment involved doing human testing trials, trials that Cole volunteered for. The process broke down every aspect of the human body, both mentally and physically, and rebuilt it on the other side. We already know about Sylvester's hesitance to go through with the machines himself, but we didn't know quite why, besides the obvious aversion to systematically killing yourself so that you can be reborn again seven feet away. But here's what he had to say. The machine we built, while theoretically perfect in its transformation process, was still a machine. There was a chance for error. And no matter how small that chance was, the result of an error could be catastrophic. Even a slight change in your DNA or physical body would have drastic effects in your personality. I should have seen it sooner. Or maybe it's hindsight. But looking back, there was something different about Cole. From the moment he first stepped onto that platform. On that fateful day 19 years ago, Cole had set out to try and retrieve his dead son from that world. That's the base level of what myself and Sylvester believe that he wanted. Sylvester believes that Cole had attempted this, at least partially, more than a few times prior to this day, without his knowledge. He had suspected Cole had tampered with the machines, trying to delay the breakdown time, which could result in serious damage. Speeding up the process radically diminished the machine's ability to perform its task. But that didn't matter to Cole. What mattered was spending as much time in this... other world... as possible. Which is what Sylvester suspected Cole was trying to do with changing the rate of the machine. Cole's plan was to go back after a day's work. With Sylvester gone, he would be left to himself. Sylvester had warned him not to try anything crazy, which was part of their argument that was on the missing security footage. Footage, which in the previous episode I had mentioned was clearly edited, but again, this has a less sinister explanation. And again, we go back to Sylvester for this. I suspect that Cole had increased the power flow for the transmission, to help keep the experiment stable while extending the time that the breakdown process would take. That blip you see, that's the power surge from when Cole made the transfer, and if you think about it, it is the physical manifestation of Cole's death. Or whatever you would call it. That's when it happened. That exact moment. Cole Atkins's plan was to use the machine to bring back his son Bobby. How? That's something Sylvester was never quite sure about. Was it even possible? That doesn't really matter. What matters is that Cole believed it was possible. It was a belief so strong that he was willing to sacrifice everything for. Cole Atkins stepped onto the platform sometime before 5 p.m. on August 20th, 1997. What was going through his mind, that we'll never fully know. But I suspect he was scared. I suspected he was thinking about his family, about his wife Carrie, and about his daughter Roxy Atkins, and of course, about his son Bobby. Did Cole know that by doing this, he would be leaving this world for good? Leaving behind a wife and a daughter? I suspect that he had some idea that it was possible. But at the same time, I also suspect that he believed the probability of his return was high. It had to be, right? From all we've heard about Cole, everything everyone has told us, he just doesn't seem like the type of person to do that without fully understanding the consequences. Why leave his family here on earth for a chance to see a son who was in another world? A world that may not even truly exist. Why? That may not be something we ever truly understand. But what we do know is that Cole was a man who was crippled by grief, whether he showed that or not. A man who had access to technology, to knowledge that we may never know or understand ourselves. Where did Cole go? Again, we're left grasping at smoke. Was it heaven? Was it hell? Or maybe it was midworld after all. Could it be that these visions of another world were all just a part of a dream? A nightmare, if you will, that Cole was never able to awake from? We don't know. What we do know is that at 5.03pm on August 20th, 1997, Cole Atkins activated a teleportation device and was never seen again. I talked to Nick Lieb the lead detective on this case, and shared my information with him. Information that he found interesting, but generally useless. He said what we discovered proves nothing except that what he had already known 20 years ago. The case of Cole Atkins is one that will never truly be solved. I talked to Jamie Lloyd, the man who brought me this case in the first place. While he never truly refuted what I had to say, he insisted that there was more to the story. He insisted that Revolver was more involved than I said. That may be true. And finally, he insisted that he would never stop searching, not until he found what he was looking for. And to that, I say go then. Because after all, if the story of Cole Atkins is to be believed, then there truly are other worlds and therefore other answers than these. I talked to Carrie Atkins, who took this information, my theories, a little hard. She was angry at me and maybe at Cole, but mostly at me, for digging up these corpses from her past. Corpses that she says should have remained buried. For that, Carrie, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that I wasn't able to get the answers that you wanted. Cole Atkins left us 19 years ago. But, do people who die ever leave us? Sure, they may leave this world and they may go to others, but they truly don't leave us, not really. They stay with us because they are a part of us. They are ghosts and it is us that they leave behind. Because at the end of the day, it is not emotions or memories or clues even if they are left in the form of a cryptic message hidden away in a Stephen King book that people leave behind once they move on from this world. What ghosts leave behind are questions, some of which may never get answered. This is Broadcast Mysteries, Season 1. Thank you for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you. Broadcast Mysteries is produced by Joshua Roach, music by Michael Feen, logo and graphics designed by Alex Daranowski and hosted by me, Carolee Gerwing. I would like to thank Jason Vanderviver, Kevin Martin, Mackenzie Lieb, Rob Vanderviver, Jeff Schultz, Skylar Radzian, and Sarah Pullen. Without you, this wouldn't be possible. If you like Broadcast Mysteries, let us know by messaging us on Facebook or on Twitter at BC Mysteries or by emailing us at info at broadcastmysteries.com. While you're at it, tell your friends about us. Season 2 will happen, when? I'm not sure. What I do know is, it will be a whole new case. A new story of the unexplained, the uncanny, and the unsolved.